0: Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6.
1: let open your Bibles to Hebrews 6. We are working our way through this great book, for those of you that are new and uh, have been learning much from the Lord in it. Yesterday I drove to Seattle to pick up one of our computers that was there being repaired uh, by a friend of mine. Kathy went on vacation and her computer did also. So uh, it's back renewed and ready to work with an extra large hard drive so you can put all kinds of things in there. And I did really good. I only stopped, I think, three times on the way down and one time on the way back. (laughs) I enjoy traveling very much. I just don't enjoy long drives without stopping. And I think from here to Seattle is a long drive. I'm kind of a wimp when it comes to driving. When we lived in Tukwila on most trips, I wouldn't even make it any farther than the AM-PM right at the bottom of the hill before we got on the on-ramp and I had to stop and get a Diet Pepsi for the drive. And it got so bad when our kids were teenagers that they would say, let's not stop, let's just get there. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't enjoy sitting still. Uh, that, that's always been a real relative term for me. When I consider myself to be sitting still, I'm really not. And what I think the book of Hebrews is going to teach us today is that while it's okay for the Christian to take stops on their road trip, it's not okay For the Christian to take stops on their Christian trip. And even more importantly, what this passage is going to teach us is how to keep going day by day without stopping in our Christian life. Follow me in Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely... Blessing, I will bless you, and multiply, and I will multiply you. And so, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, "...confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus." having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In order to fully grasp the importance of this passage, we have to think back a little bit earlier in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 5, and the author, by God's inspiration, has been addressing a problem with these Christians, and the problem is basically this. They started in the Christian life, and they appear to be getting sidetracked as though they might jump off the Christian wagon. Now, they're not going to lose their salvation, but they might stop to, be, to genuinely live for the Lord, stop genuinely living for the Lord, and start living in some pseudo-Christianity or some ungodliness. And the warning that was given right before this passage is a very serious warning in which God says, if you do that, you may come to a point at which the chastening becomes so great that there will be no turning back Uh, in your Christian life that God will take you home. Here, he goes on to say, now, here's how you avoid that and stay living for the Lord day by day and week by week. There are three things we need to understand if we would do that. First of all, we must understand God's credibility. He uses Abraham as an example which of course to these early Jewish Christians would have been the supreme example of godliness. And what we understand here is God made a promise to Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, what was that promise? Well, you could note down some passages and read them later. The promise is first given, or the, the call to Abraham is given in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And then in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18, it is reiterated. And in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, it's reiterated again. And in Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8, it's given again. And I'm just going to read a little summary of this from one of the authors that I read this week, who said this, God promised to establish Abraham as the father of, a, of the great nation of Israel, to bless him, to make his name great, to cause him... To bless others, to reward his friends, and to judge his enemies, to bless the entire world through him, to give him and his physical posterity the land of Canaan, and to be his God. The promise, especially, centered in the future birth of a son to the childless patriarch and his barren wife Sarah. In Hebrews 6, we have the summary of that blessing in verse 14. Here's the summary. Surely, blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. This is written in a way that in English would be called redundant or superfluous. He he layers up the words for emphasis, which was a way that uh, language was used for both the Hebrews and the Greeks. He says, surely, I will bless you, or certainly, or without doubt, and certainly, I will multiply you. God said, Abraham, you're going to be a great man, and from you is going to come a great nation. That's the two essences of the promise there. God made a promise. The second thing we understand here is God swore an oath. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, you can look this up later in Genesis 22, verse 16, when God says to Abraham, he says, Abraham, by myself I am swearing. Now, the, the whole concept of swearing was something that was used. Now, we use the term swear today to mean to use you know, inappropriate language or obscene language or to use the Lord's name in vain. But in the day of Abraham, and certainly still today, we use the word swear to mean affirming the truthfulness of something. There are several recorded instances where Abraham swore by God. In other words, he would say, by God, I am going to do this. We, we use those words today, but they don't mean anything to us sometimes. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, by the way, if you say by God and you don't mean it. That Abraham would, would make oaths, and God made an oath. And, and what the scripture tells us here is, who, what higher power is, gonna, is God gonna call on to say, I am telling the truth. He said, I couldn't, t- I couldn't call on anything higher, so I called on myself. And he said, I am making this promise. I myself, it's written in an intensive way. By myself, I have sworn. Now today, we take the taking of oaths very seriously also in some circumstances. If you go to court... And uh, they bring a Bible out and say, do you put your hand there and hold your other hand up? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? Some places don't say, so help you God, they just say, so help you. Don't want to offend anybody and so on. You are swearing an oath. And we take the swearing of an oath so seriously there that if you fail to tell the truth, you will be indicted in a criminal way and prosecuted and perhaps punished for uh, telling a lie under oath. God swore an oath. He made a promise to Abraham and in order, he says right here, verse 17, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability or unchangeableness of his counsel, the truthfulness, confirmed it by an oath. God did not need to take an oath. (laughs) All all God needs to do is to say, this is the way it's gonna be. Isn't that right? And sometimes you are forced into taking an oath to force the truth out of you. You know, little kids will do this, you know, some little concoction they come up with, you know, do you swear, you know, yeah, and trying to force the truth out of a person. God didn't need that. God had already told Abraham, Abraham, this is gonna happen. You are gonna be a great man, and from you is gonna come a great nation. But in order to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, who are the heirs of promise? You and me. God said, I want everybody who, who is the recipient of this promise to know that I made a commitment and I kept it. Verse 17 says, determining to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it. That word could be translated guaranteed. God swore an oath and God didn't lie. He vouched for himself. In our system of truth telling, vouching for yourself has no value because we know, you know, you might lie, whatever. But God doesn't lie. And so when God made a promise and God swore an oath, it was the ultimate commitment to Abraham that these things were going to happen. Now I'd like you to think a little bit about what God has promised to us because God has made us some promises. And, and I would just think very simply of, of four of those promises he's made. The first one is he's promised you a home in heaven. And you have to ask yourself, how do I know that's true? In part, you know it's true because of the promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God has promised us a home in heaven. John 14, I'm going to prepare a place and I will come back and take you there. He's promised us a new life. 1 Corinthians 10, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. If you're here today and you've never believed in Christ as your Savior, you need to know that one of the things God promises you is a new life. New character rising up from within you. And... We might even say that there are two great blessings to the Christian life. One is the confidence of heaven in, a home in heaven, and the other is the character that God wants to build into us right now. And if you're here today and you've never experienced that, that is the promise of God that, that awaits you, a new life. He also promises us, promises us a source of help. In James 1.5, he says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally. He promises to help us when we are in difficulty. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, he promises that we can have a vital purpose. When he says, when the Apostle Paul writes this, God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, one of the reasons why I didn't have a midlife crisis is because when I hit 40, which was like, you know, maybe yesterday. I'm somewhere between 40 and a Walmart greeter. (laughs) When I hit 40 and I looked back, I said, man, my life matters! Not because of me, but because God called me as a Christian to serve Him. What a privilege that is. If your life doesn't matter too much, If you look around and think you're kind of insignificant, may I just say to you that God promises you can have a tremendous life of purpose in serving Him. God has made promises to us, just like He did to Abraham. He has promised me that I can go to heaven. He has promised me that He'll build character in me. He's promised me all of these things and many more. And you know what, folks? God doesn't owe me a thing. God doesn't owe me a thing. He never has owed me a thing. But he has committed himself to do things for me. What a tremendous privilege. If you would be a long-haul Christian, you must understand God has promised to do things and God doesn't lie. If that big word immutability is in your translation of the Bible like it is in mine, it means that God doesn't change. And so when he makes a promise, it's going to happen. He doesn't change. God has made promises. We need to understand God's credibility. Abraham understood it. And so if we would follow Abraham into this life of long-haul belief and faith in God, we must follow his example of certainty. Look at Abraham's challenge that's written here for us in verse 15. God made a promise... And verse 15 says, and so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Don't you hate verses like that? God says, you want to get my promise? Patiently endure. That's how you get it. It was approximately 40 years from the first time God talked to Abraham and said, man, I'm going to make something great out of you. And what I want you to do is to leave your home and get up and move to this place. And then when he got there, he said, no, that's not the place you want you to go over here. And things he went on and on. And he says, I'm gonna make somebody great. And as you saw earlier, that promise is reiterated about five times. You ever had somebody make a promise to you five times? Hey, Hey, I promise it's gonna happen. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. Abraham had to patiently endure. You know what I think patient endurance is today? It's when I wait for something to come out of the microwave in a minute. We got a new microwave, you know, we, we redid our kitchen and we got one of those microwaves that hangs up you know, above the stove. And uh, one of the little features is a button that says add one minute. You don't even have to push time and put the buttons in, you just go boom, one minute, and it's cooking, just like that. That's my kind of microwave. If you want two minutes, you just push it twice. Three minutes, boom, 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 it's cooking. That's what I call patient endurance. <laughs> Yeah, you laugh because you know. Abraham had to wait 40 years for God to come through. God's never made you wait 40 years for anything. I'm venturing to guess, and I'm guessing I'm right. Now, some of you had to wait a while. Just because God doesn't deliver in our time doesn't mean he's not going to deliver Abraham patiently endured, and he obtained the promise. One of the authors that I read said this, Abraham had the long outlook of faith. Uh, Our society is probably worse this way than many around the world today because we're in such a hurry for everything. We need the long outlook of faith. Abraham had to endure the timing of God's fulfillment Secondly, Abraham had to endure some issues of obedience. Abraham lived in the area that we would call Iraq today, and God said, leave your home and go to a place that I will show you, and I will make of you a great and mighty nation. Now, did you catch that? God didn't tell him where he was going. If you heard a voice from the sky, <laughs> and he said, hey, Dave, Go somewhere, and I'm going to bless you. Oh yeah, I'll pack right up tomorrow. You know. But that's what he did. God said, you go, and I'm going to bless you. So he packed up, and he went to a place called Haran. And he got there, and God said, no, this isn't the place. Keep moving. And he got to a place called Canaan. And he said, this is the place I'm going to give you. Did he give it to him then? No. Abraham, only, the only piece of land he ever owned in Canaan was a burial plot. That was it. He had to get up and leave his family and follow God in obedience to get to the place where God was going to bless him. And then he had this tremendous issue of obedience in sacrificing his son. He finally had a son. After 40 years and after some problems, he's got this wonderful son and now the son's an adult or a young adult and God says, take him up over yonder and sacrifice him to me. Put yourself in Abraham's place. Oh, man. But what did Abraham say as they were going on the way before they even started the actual sacrificing? Abraham said to his son, and the son said, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide a lamb. See, by that time, Abraham had already learned his lessons. He said, God's going to make this happen somehow, some way. We're going to see later on in the book of Hebrews how much he believed that, that God could even raise him from the dead. Wow. And after he went through that willingness to sacrifice Isaac, that is when there is the final promise of God, the final, final reiteration where he said, Abraham... Because you have done this thing. That thing of being willing to sacrifice Isaac. You want to be an enduring Christian? You're going to have to obey some things that are hard. God's going to ask you to do some things that are tough. You're going to learn things from God's word. If you stay here long enough, you're going to you're gonna learn some things that are tough because God has some hard things to say, but he always brings blessing through it. And Abraham had a tremendous challenge of obedience, but he obeyed. One of the great lessons of Abraham's obedience is this, God only leads us one step at a time. You know, God didn't tell Abraham the whole plan. In fact, he only told him a teeny bit of it. Get up from your home and go to a place that I will show you. That was all he knew. And all of these things unfolded, and Abraham patiently endured the timing and the obedience. And then, along with that, Abraham patiently endured the miraculous. Before Isaac was born, God finally came to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, okay, now's the time, next year you're going to have a child. And Abraham goes, we are too old, our clock quick. Ticking a long time ago. Many of your clocks have quit ticking. God came to you and said, you're 99 years old and you're going to have a kid. (laughs) Say, oh no, Lord, please, please, no, 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 no. Abraham had to endure believing in the miraculous. Miraculous. Some of you need some miracles in your life. God says he's going to do some things, and you look at it and say, <laughs> fat chance. You know what? If you're going to be a long-haul Christian, if you're going to stay on track for the Lord, you have to say, you know what? That little miracle is nothing to God. And it is. It isn't. It isn't anything to him. It's no big deal. One of our brilliant fathers in, Tuk- in the Tuckwilla Church wanted to take his kids to Disneyland, but he didn't want to hear them whine all the way there in the car. Are we there yet? And so, he told them, we're going to visit Grandma in Portland. And all the way there, he said, yep, we're going to visit Grandma. We're just about there. And Because it wasn't Disneyland, they they didn't care to whine that much about how long it would take to get there. Do you suppose God ever gets tired of hearing us whine? Are we there yet? Why hasn't this happened yet? How come I have to wait so long? You don't ever whine like that, do you? No, your whining is much more sanctimonious. Oh, God, you know I've waited, low these many years. <laughs> and God's up in heaven going, yeah, that's okay. Just keep right on waiting. Remember Abraham. And that's what he's telling us here. Remember Abraham. Look at the nation that came from Abraham now. And this is a historical reality, folks. This is not some made-up story. Abraham, when he died, had a son... And a grandson and a great grandson, I believe. And that was it. He didn't have the whole fulfillment of his promise, but he still believed that God would provide. Abraham obtained. That's the great thing here. He says, after he patiently endured, he obtained. Abraham had to be patient for a long time. Abraham had to make sacrifices. Abraham had to believe in a pure miracle, and then he obtained the promise. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There has no temptation overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. You have not come upon a problem that that is surprised. God's up in heaven going, No way! What am I going to do about that? We don't stop to really think about how crazy our thoughts are sometimes. God says, no, this is common, and God is faithful. 1 Peter 4.19 is a wonderful verse that says, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. God loved Abraham, and he gave him the promise that he promised to him, And God loves us and he's going to give us what he has promised to us. If we would be a long-haul Christian, we must understand the, the credibility of God. We must follow the example of Abraham's certainty about God. And then, thirdly, we must cling to Christ for our security. Look at verse 18. That by two immutable things or unchangeable things in which it is impossible For God to lie, the two things, by the way, are the promise and the oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. We need to understand the anchor chain of faith. And this this paragraph is written in sort of a chain type way. He says, first of all, we can be strongly comforted if we have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This refuge is an allusion to the Old Testament time in which um, there were cities of refuge. And a city of refuge was something set up so that when a person accidentally killed someone, he could run to the city of refuge and be protected until a court trial would take place. And the court trial would basically determine was this an accident, a, a real accident, or was there some ill intent behind it? And if there was ill intent, it was called murder, and he was dealt with as a murderer, which was a capital offense. But if there was no ill intent, it was said to be an accident, and he was safe. Nobody could take revenge on him as long as he stayed in the city of refuge. He was safe as long as he was there. God says that we need to flee to the ultimate place of refuge which he tells us is Jesus himself in heaven. And if we do that, we can be strongly comforted strongly comforted again it's 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 kind of a redundant way to say it god says you can have comfort if you lay hold of this uh, refuge not only that he says you can be strongly comforted the question we have to ask first of all is have you ever flown have you ever run from your old life to believe in christ and take hold of that refuge in christ you do that through believing in him And saving faith. And then the question we have to ask as Christians, which is the people who this was addressed to, is are you staying put in him? See, these Christians were in danger, if you will, of stepping off the path of Christianity and living in some other path. He says you want to have strong comfort? Flee for refuge to Christ. Stay with him The second link in this chain says this, that the hope we have from fleeing to Christ is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. These two words, sure and steadfast, seem to indicate that the anchor is safe. It will not crumble in and of itself because it has no strength. It's not a lousy piece of metal that'll just fall apart, if if you will. Neither can it be attacked from the outside. We have this hope as an anchor of the soul. The third link in the chain is this. The anchor has entered the holy of holies. You know what that means? You are anchored upward. The anchor's in heaven. The holy of holies. He doesn't use the term holy of holies here, but he says behind the veil. And that is a reference to the holy of holies, the The actual, where God made his presence known in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple was behind a veil where the priest would go once a year to sprinkle the blood of the day of atonement sacrifice. And he tells us here, verse 20, Jesus is this anchor. He is the forerunner. He has entered behind the veil in heaven for us into the real holy of holies. And you put this all together, you understand that Jesus is our anchor. He's in heaven. We're attached to him if we put our faith in Christ in him. And he says, this is an anchor of the soul. Wow. The figure employed here in this idea of anchoring, I believe it has a reference to a common practice back in the day in which this, this book was written, And if a ship came into a harbor and there was like a a sandbar or that type of thing and the, the tide was low, then the ship couldn't get into the harbor. And a boat would come out and take their anchor and take the anchor over and put it over into the harbor itself. And when the tide rose, the ship could come into that harbor because it was anchored in the harbor. What a tremendous picture of us we're anchored in heaven, and there's some, some sandbars we've got to get over between here and there. But as the tide rises, if we're hanging on to the anchor, all that should happen is we get closer to the Lord. Have you ever heard this saying, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on? Maybe you've seen a, there's a poster, I have a picture in my mind of a, of a cat hanging on to the end of a a, a knotted rope. And it says that, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. You know what the truth is? What matters is not how hard you're hanging on alone, but what matters is, where is your rope tied? Where is the top of that rope that you're clinging on so tightly? There are some interesting anchors that people hang on to today. And you may snicker about some of them, but there are people who believe that these are anchors of the soul. One of them is government. There are many people in our country today who believe that the reason some people's lives are messed up is because the government hasn't done enough for them. They believe that the government can create a society in which people become civil and productive universally so. And if you're like me, you think, man, have you read history at all? You know. Some people believe, that, some people have anchored themselves maybe unknowingly to their employer. You know, uh, uh, one of the important things about getting a job these days is the side benefits, one of the biggest of which is medical insurance. And uh, We have all these benefits, and we think, man, I can't live without this. I've got to have this. And I wonder if sometimes we've unknowingly anchored our soul to the employer. And when the employer downsizes, or lets people go, or has a bad economic report, because our soul is anchored to the employer, we're we're shaken. Many people anchor their soul to their husband or wife. On the surface, that looks like a really wonderful thing. And certainly, your soul, humanly speaking, ought to be anchored to your husband or wife. Some people anchor their soul to a boyfriend or girlfriend. And those of us who are older and married look at the young and say, oh, how silly they've anchored their soul to a boyfriend or a girlfriend when it's really no more silly than us anchoring to our husband or wife. We understand the transitory nature of boyfriends and girlfriends, and we somehow think husbands and wives are forever. Now who's the silly one? Some people anchor their life to a certain skill that they have, or an ability they have, or a child. Friends, what this scripture is telling us today is We need to toss our anchor into heaven if it's not there yet. Because God will never let us go. And once we know that we're anchored to Christ with God, we need to hang on to that anchor chain for dear life. That's the way we can become long-haul Christians.
0: Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111 we invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.